About the same time every year, many of us listen to the Christmas story. Many of us read the Christmas story. Many of us walk through the store aisles, look inside our homes, and we see the nativity scene. Everybody knows the Christmas story. Jesus, the three wise men, Mary and Joseph with no place to stay because there was no room in the inn. They had Jesus in a stable, surrounded by animals, all alone by themselves. Those three wise men that were standing there, they came bearing gifts because on the day Jesus was born, they were led by a shining star. Well, what if I told you that the popularized version of the Christmas story, the the birth of Jesus, what if I told you that that version was incorrect? That there have been many false details added to the narrative from various traditions and songs and stories. Would it shock you to know that Jesus was most likely born surrounded by people and family within somebody's home? We're taking a quick detour from our study of Romans to break down the Christmas story right before Christmas. But before we get into this, I want to let y'all know that this will be the last episode of the year. I will be taking next week off to spend time with my family, but hey, beginning of the year, January, we're back on track, baby. We're going to get through Romans and it's going to be great. But I, I wanted to go through this nativity scene with you because right now I have a picture of the the nativity scene pulled up on Google Images. You can just Google nativity scene and you'll see basically the same rendition of this. And what I'm seeing, I'm seeing Jesus in a manger, okay, and he's inside of a stable or a barn with a bunch of animals surrounding him. You got the three wise men. Uh, there's a bright star above that barn on the day that he was born. And all of these are technically incorrect. If you don't know the Christmas story, or more accurately, the narratives of the birth of Jesus, or if you just want a refresher, um, or if you want to check the things that I'm about to say, you can find these narratives in Luke chapter 2, and at the end of Matthew chapter 1, going into Matthew chapter 2. Now you may be wondering, Dante, why are you why are you going after the Christmas story? <laughs> well, I'm not going after the Christmas story. I I just I want to share the actual true Christmas story and kind of help us navigate all this fluff and extra biblical tradition that the Bible never actually says because I've been going to church for over 23 years of my life. I'm 24 and I've been going basically my entire life. And the things I'm going to share with you today I, I've, I'm literally just now hearing of these things within the last year of my study. I mean, my church tradition told me the popular version of the nativity scene. My family tradition told me the same thing. My culture told me the same thing. And unfortunately, a lot of the popularized things within the Christmas story, they've been added to the text. They're not found anywhere in the Bible, and a lot of those are actually misunderstandings of the culture. So with all that being said, let me go ahead and just quickly give you four monkey wrenches that will be thrown into 
your traditional understanding of the Christmas story because they most definitely were thrown into mine as well. Uh, the first one, this one was the most shocking to me. I did not know this until like a few weeks ago, which is sad. Uh, it's the question of when was Jesus born? Well, first of all, most of us would say, oh, December 25th, 2021 years ago. And I'm not going to get into the whole December 25th thing, but it is debated among scholars and different traditions. But it is fair to say that most likely Jesus was not born on December 25th. Scholars don't know exactly when Jesus was born. The Bible does not tell us. It obviously does not uh, think that it is that important for us to know. But most importantly, I want to look at the year when Jesus was born. Because many people, including myself, thought that Jesus was born on the year 1, 1 AD. And I think if we reflect on this, we need to ask ourselves why. I think the reason why is because, well, popular tradition would tell us that since BC stands for before Christ and AD, which is a Greek phrase for anno domini, literally means year of our Lord. So we've kind of just had the tradition that AD, since it means year of our Lord, must signify the first year when Jesus Christ was born. Therefore, Jesus Christ would have been born on 1 AD because BC means before Christ. So clearly Jesus could not have been born before Christ. But funny enough, most New Testament scholarship will tell us that Jesus was actually born around the years 4 to 6 BC. And here's why. Biblicalarchaeology.org has a great article on this, and they say this, most date the death of King Herod the Great to 4 BC. And since Herod played a major role in the narrative of Jesus' birth, Jesus would have had to be born before Herod died. And what they're talking about is in Matthew chapter 2, in Matthew's um, narrative of Jesus being born, we read this in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. So Matthew has already told us, Herod is the king at this time. He's already alive. And Jesus was already born while Herod was alive. And you read a few verses in and you find out, that Herod wanted to kill the already born Jesus. So if Jesus was already born by the time that Herod the king or Herod the great was alive, and then Herod died in 4 BC, then that means Jesus had to have already been born anywhere between 4 to 6 BC. And the reason why they have the year 6 BC is because Herod sends out a decree to kill all the newborn babies that are year 2 and under. So you have that two-year age range there. Here's the second monkey wrench. Uh, the story is often told that Joseph and Mary arrived at a place where they were strangers. They had no place to stay. The hotels were all vacant. Nobody wanted to bring them in. And this is where we get that narrative from in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, so all we're told from this is that Joseph is from the line of David. He's a descendant of David. And because of this, he must return to his hometown for this census, and his hometown is Bethlehem. So right off the bat, Joseph is taking his family to his hometown where he would have grown up and he would have been known. Kenneth E. Bailey, a great New Testament scholar, says this in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He says, quote, Joseph was returning to his home village where he could easily find shelter because he was a descendant of King David. Nearly all doors in the village were open to him. There was plenty of time to arrange suitable housing, end quote. So naturally, uh, some of us, when we hear this, we would object and say, uh, but Dante, if you read a little bit further, remember that Jesus had to be laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn? If they were in their hometown, why was he laid in a stable? Why then were they unable to find a hotel or an inn to stay in? It doesn't seem like anybody wanted to help him. And my answer to that would be this, that this type of question would arise from our modern Western misunderstanding of what a manger was used for, where it was located, and also the inn and how that word is used. Kenneth Bailey says this once more, quote, For the Western mind, the word manger invokes the word stable or barn. But in traditional Middle Eastern villages, this is not the case. People of great wealth would naturally have had separate quarters for animals. But simple village homes in Palestine often had but two rooms. One was exclusively for guests, and that room could be attached to the end of the house or be a prophet's chamber on the roof, as in the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17.19. The main room was a family room where the entire family cooked, ate, slept, and lived. The end of the room next to the door was either a few feet lower than the rest of the floor or blocked off with heavy timbers. Each night into that designated area, the family cow, donkey, and a few sheep would be driven. Such simple homes can be traced from the time of David up to the middle of the 20th century. So here we have to understand how different homes and living arrangements were in the ancient Middle East. Kenneth Bailey just pointed out some of this, that for your average agriculturally working citizen in this time frame, their home would have been, you have the main living quarters, that's where the family ate, slept, did all their stuff. That was the main place. And then they would also have an additional room, a guest room or what could be called a prophet's chamber, as he pointed out in First Kings. But then a few feet away from that living area, there was a, a space that was a little bit lower. It was re uh, recessed into the ground. And that's where the animals would stay. The animals would actually stay in the homes with the people. Look what he says about mangers. Quote, mangers were dug out of the lower end of the living room. The family living room had a slight slope in the direction of the animal stall, which aids in sweeping and washing. Dirt and water naturally move downhill into the space for the animals and can be swept out the door. 
if the family cow is hungry during the night, she can stand up and eat from the mangers cut out of the floor of the living room. Mangers for sheep can be of wood and placed on the floor of the lower level. This style of traditional home fits naturally into the birth story of Jesus. But such homes are also implicit in Old Testament stories. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul was a guest in the house of the medium of Endor when the king refused to eat. The medium then took a fatted calf that in verse 24 says was in the house. She then killed it and prepared a meal for the king and his servants. So from this narrative in 1 Samuel 28 verse 24, we see clearly that she did not grab a cow from outside of the field or from a barn, but the the calf was inside of the house with her. That's how these homes were constructed in this ancient time. So hopefully this insight shows you how the homes in this time were built to house their animals. And within the living quarters, they were there were cutouts or wooden mangers for the animals to eat. And all of this is to show that Mary and Joseph were not forced to have Jesus within a barn or within a stable. But it was within just a normal family home. He was placed inside the mangers that were located inside of somebody's house. Now, the next problem, and I didn't forget, is this problem of there being, quote, no place for them in the inn. Since most people nowadays, when we hear the word inn, we take it to mean like a hotel room, right? Or a place that has vacancy. And this makes us think that since there was no room for them in the inn, it makes us think that the people of Bethlehem rejected them, that they saw Mary, they knew the situation, they're like, oh no, I really don't, I don't want to have to deal with this woman having a baby in my hotel. And this couldn't be farther from the truth. Kenneth says this, if Luke expected his reader to think Joseph was turned away from an inn, he would have used the Greek word pendokion which means a commercial inn, like an actual hotel. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, he used the Greek word katalima, which literally just renders place to stay or guest room, end quote. And Bailey points out how this Greek word katalima that Luke uses is actually best translated to mean a guest room. And other Bible translations support this when you look at their footnotes. Here's some extra uh, biblical proof to show you that this is the case. One instance of the Greek word katalima being used to refer to a guest room is found in Luke 22. Same author, uh, verses 10 through 12. And this is Jesus talking. He says, And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, or katalima, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, and prepare it there. Bailey says this, quote, Here, the key word katalima is defined as an upper room, which is clearly a guest room in a private house. This precise meaning makes perfect sense when applied to the birth story. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, Luke tells his readers that Jesus was placed in a manger in the family room because in that home, the guest room was already full. End quote. So, to summarize, Mary and Joseph would have been recognized and welcomed in their hometown of Bethlehem. Joseph was from the line of David. They would have known who he was. This was his hometown. Jesus would have been laid in a manger that was already pre-built into the family's living room because that's how their home structure was set up. 
And they would have had to be placed in the living room, not in the guest room, the catalima, because that would have already been full. So most likely Mary and Joseph and Jesus were surrounded by people who were willing and ready to help them. This would have been something that would have been expected from Jewish people. The Torah talks heavily about caring for the widows and the orphans and the poor. They would have been expected to help Mary and Joseph. So this whole idea that Mary and Joseph were rejected, they were alone, they had no place to stay. Um, When we look at the cultural context and the original language, it's fairly clear that that is not true. They would have been surrounded and loved, which I think that makes the story of Jesus' birth so much more special that the people that they went to in their time of need would have been there to help them and give them shelter. And Jesus would have been surrounded by family and by people that loved him. That That is just awesome to think about. Okay, third monkey wrench. A star shining above Jesus when he was born. And this is something I see a lot in nativity scenes. But funny enough, the Bible never says that there's a star above Jesus when he's born. Um, the gospelcoalition.org says this, and quote, the problem when it comes to a star being over Jesus when he's born is that there's no indication that the star hovered over the manger on the night Jesus was born. On the contrary, when the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds watching their flocks by night in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, they weren't told to look for a star. They were told to look for something else. And he quotes from Luke chapter 2, verse 12. It says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. End quote. So for the, the shepherds who would have been heading that way for the, the day of Jesus' birth, they weren't told to look for a star. They were told to look for a sign, which would be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, which also shows Jesus entering into this world in a uh, in a more lowly status, being wrapped in swaddling clothes and having to lie in a manger. Um, but they continue on when it comes to where the star actually appears in the narrative. They say this, quote, The star was given not to the shepherds, but to the Magi, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, who appear to be visiting Jesus at a later time period. How much later is unclear, but the fact that Herod commands all the babies in the region younger than two years old to be killed suggests that Jesus may have been in Bethlehem for some time. And we also know from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus was already born at this time. So there wasn't a star floating above Jesus' head when he was born. Um, this occurred most likely probably anywhere between a few months to a few years later after the birth of Jesus. And here's the fourth monkey wrench. This one is my favorite. That there were three wise men, only three wise men, <laughs> Um, you'd be shocked to know that the Bible never says this. <laughs> I'm only laughing because a lot of these traditions that we have surrounding this, this birth story of Jesus, they just add, they kind of just add stuff or, um, they kind of add like mythology to what the Bible says about this. And it never really says it. And we just kind of take it as gospel truth and go along with it. But, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, the idea of three wise men come from the Christmas song, We Three Kings. I mean, that song slaps, I'm not going to lie. But all we're told regarding the Magi is that in Matthew chapter 2 is that there were wise men 
and those wise men brought three gifts. And I'll read you a few passages. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, so we've established it. There's wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. Talking about the, the magi and, or the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the closest that you could come to trying to infer that there's only three wise men is that uh, they brought three gifts. But nowhere does it say that there were only three wise men. And also, it doesn't specify the amount of each gift. We kind of just assume it into the text that there were three wise men carrying a small portion of each item. But it very well could have been a large group carrying a lot of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like if, if I was coming over to a barbecue and I said, hey, I have some friends coming over to the barbecue and we're going to bring burgers, fries, and drinks. You could conclude and say, oh, there's only three friends coming. One's going to have burgers, one's going to have fries, one's going to have drinks. Or I could have just made a ton of burgers, a ton of fries, and I could have bought a 12-pack of Coke, and I'm bringing over 20 people. Just because there's three specific gifts does not mean that there's only three people bringing those gifts. It could have been one or two wise men that were carrying all of these, or it could have been a lot more. So the idea that there are three wise men, um, there's really no biblical support for that. It's just kind of added in from some tradition. Um, but that's the last monkey wrench I have for you regarding the nativity scene and the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. So once again, if you want to throw a wrench in people's understanding of the Christmas story, here are four things that you can tell them. And with that, I hope y'all have a very Merry Christmas. I will see y'all next year.